Hello and welcome to Dialogue Gospel Study. I'm Rebecca Deschweinitz and as a member of the Dialogue Foundation Board, I'm pleased to welcome you to our lesson today on 3rd Nephi 20 through 26 with our guest instructor, Tom Christofferson. Fellow board members, Michael Austin and Chris Kimball are with me and will be helping out with some technical issues and our discussion. Uh, so they might show up on your screen from time to time. As usual, those joining live on Zoom will be able to post comments and ask questions through the chat function. We love hearing or uh, reading rather your insights and being able to bring in some of your questions and comments into our conversation, which we anticipate doing toward the end of the lesson today. As always, please be respectful and relevant as you participate on chat. We are also live on Facebook. So welcome to folks joining us there, as well as to the many people who tune in later on the Dialogue Podcast Network or our YouTube channel, where all of our previous lessons are available. There are links at dialoguejournal.com, where you can also find the entire 50 plus years of the journal. If you enjoy these gospel study lessons and Dialogue's other long-standing efforts to promote diverse perspectives and some of the faith's most vibrant thinking, through scholarship, poetry, art, fiction, personal essays, sermonizing, and more, we invite you to help support Dialogue's mission and initiatives. There's a donate link on dialoguejournal.com and we'll share a phone number in chat, send us a text and become a supporter. We are thrilled to have with us today, Tom Christofferson. Tom is the author of That We May Be One, A Gay Mormon's Perspective on Faith and Family and the forthcoming A Better Heart, The Power of Christ's Pure Love, both published by Deseret Book. Tom's career in global investment management and asset servicing based in Europe and the United States included nearly 18 years with JP Morgan. He has also served on numerous corporate and nonprofit boards. Brother Christofferson currently teaches gospel doctrine in his Mesa, Arizona ward. We are grateful to Tom for his willingness to share his insights and for his preparation today. As with any Latter-day Saint scripture study class, the views expressed in this lesson will be those of the individual teacher and do not necessarily reflect those of the Dialogue Foundation, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or any other organization. We'll begin today with music. My kindness shall not depart from thee from a 2009 performance of Joseph the Prophet live at Abravanal Hall. After that, my spouse, Peter Deschweinitz, will offer our opening prayer. Dear God, we're grateful for this Sabbath morning and grateful that Brother Christofferson has prepared a message and we ask that you bless him with your spirit and bless us all with your spirit to be able to receive his message. And we're thankful for all of the blessings that we enjoy on the earth and we pray for um, your guidance as we make our decisions, um, both as nations and families. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Thank you, Peter. 
and uh, it's wonderful to be with all of you today. Um, last week, Brother Tekolve, as he was uh, beginning his lesson, asked a few very thought-provoking questions, and, and one of which I'd like to remind you of as we begin today. He said, how do I touch the symbols of his sacrifice daily? And I think today, as we go through these uh, chapters, the final chapters of Christ's appearance, um, we have at least some ideas of ways that, that we can do that. Uh, Michael, if we could put the first slide up, please. Um, Jesus as our exemplar in all things, but I think in these chapters, as we uh, begin looking at some of the messages uh, that we receive, there are four areas that I'd like to cover today where I think we have the opportunity to touch these symbols daily. One is in our care for the sacrament, and I put in parentheses the Holy Ghost there. I'll explain that as we go. The second, care for the scriptures and revelation. Third, care for the afflicted and the poor. And fourth, care for all of the family of God. So as we begin, I'd like to talk first about uh, the sacrament. In, in uh, chapter 20, when we start, uh, we have a, a miraculous engagement of the sacrament. But I'd like to go back a bit to chapter 18. So in that chapter is when Christ has introduced the elements of the sacrament to the, the people there. Um, in chapter 18, verse 22, he says, Behold, ye shall meet together oft, and ye shall not forbid any person from coming unto you when ye shall meet together. But suffer them that they may come unto you and forbid them not. And so as he teaches of the sacrament, he immediately then also teaches of where generally that sacrament will take place, which is in our church or synagogue. In verse 25, he continues, And ye see that I have commanded that none of you should go away, but rather have commanded that ye should come unto me, that ye might feel and see. Even so shall ye do unto the world. And I think that gives us a clue of what feel and see means in this context. They obviously had the opportunity to feel the wounds in his hands and feet and in his side and to see him, a resurrected being, before them. But uh, in his comment that they would take that to all the world, clearly others won't have the same opportunity, but we can feel his presence and see his love in action. There are ways for all of us to continue to participate in that feel and see. And whosoever, sorry, even so shall you do this unto the world. But then this very last phrase, I think we often don't pay as much attention to. And whosoever breaketh this commandment, what's the commandment? That none of you should go away, but that you should come unto me. Suffereth himself to be led into temptation. Now he continues in, in chapter 18. And he's talking about the necessity of partaking of the sacrament, the emblems of his sacrifice worthily. And this is not on a slide, but he says um, for those who might at any given moment in time feel themselves unworthy, nevertheless, ye shall not cast him out from among you, but ye shall minister unto him and shall pray for him in, unto the Father in my name. And if it so be that he repenteth and is baptized in my name, then ye shall receive him and shall minister unto him of my flesh and blood. But if you repent not, he shall not be numbered among my people. 
the notion here is perhaps he's not been baptized, therefore not numbered among the people, whatever it might be, that he may not destroy my people, for behold, I know my sheep and they are numbered. But then verse 32 says, nevertheless, you shall not cast him out of your synagogues. Now, can I just say, I think as he's gone through these steps, this nevertheless relates to someone who in some senses might be seen to be unworthy, right? Nevertheless, ye shall not cast him out of your synagogues or your places of worship, for unto such shall ye continue to minister. For ye know not but what they will return and repent and come unto me with full purpose of heart, and I shall heal them, and ye shall be the means of bringing salvation unto them. So if we remember again that final phrase, whosoever breaketh this commandment suffereth himself to be led into temptation, I think the message is very clear that our chapels are intended to be a place of welcome, a, a respite uh, for everyone and anyone who has the courage to push those doors open and enter. And if we act in a way that makes that place unwelcoming or a place that others would feel they ought not to come, then that uh, breaketh the commandment, suffereth himself to be led into temptation. We are putting ourselves in a position um, to be tempted. So. I think that's a critical way as we begin to talk about the sacrament and even the miracle of the sacrament to bear in mind that in that place where we have that ordinance, everyone is welcome. Now, again, they may feel themselves not prepared to take of those emblems, but their presence in that synagogue, in that place of worship is a requirement on our part to move over in the pew and say hello and greet them warmly and make them feel wanted, accepted, and at home. Now, if we go to um, Third Nephi in chapter 20, um, verses 6, 7, and 9, and there is a slide for this one, we read, Now there had been no bread, neither wine, brought by the disciples, neither by the multitude, but he truly gave unto them bread to eat and also wine to drink. Now, when the multitude had all eaten and drunk, behold, they were filled with the Spirit and did cry out with one voice and gave glory to Jesus, whom they both saw and heard. So this begins a process of the Savior, um, again, providing the sacrament to the people, in this case, in a miraculous way. In the, old, in the New Testament, the old world, he obviously fed 4,000 and 5,000 in the Galilee. Here he feeds 2,500 with the emblems of his sacrifice. And then in, in chapter 26, verse 13, it says he did show himself oft over these, this period of days and did break bread oft and bless it. So part of his communion with these people each day was to provide the emblems of his sacrifice for them in his presence. Um, Brother Tecolve last week also uh, talked about uh, I gave a, a, a portion of a talk that Elder John H. Groberg had given. And, and Michael, if you would tee that up as we do, there's another, a different talk by him that I'd like to share specifically about the sacrament. But as we do that, I want to call attention again to the idea that after they'd had the sacrament, they were filled with the Spirit. So in that sense, we're linking the sacrament to the presence of the Holy Ghost and that it's uh, in some ways a conduit uh, for us to be filled with the Spirit. Let's go ahead and hear from Elder Groberg. 
Being filled with God's love is the most joyous of all things and is worth every cost. I thank God for this choice time and for the many reminders of his love. The sun, the moon, the stars, the earth, the birth of a child, the smile of a friend. I thanked him for scriptures, for the privilege of prayer, and for that most marvelous reminder of his love, the sacrament. I learned that as we sing the sacrament hymns with real intent, phrases like, how great the wisdom and the love, or dearly, dearly has he loved and we must love him too, will swell our hearts with love and gratitude. As we sincerely listen to the sacrament prayers, phrases such as, always remember him, keep his commandments, have his spirit to be with them, will fill our hearts with an overwhelming desire to be better. Then when we partake of the bread and the water, with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, I know we can feel and even hear those most wondrous words, I love you. I um, I hope we do have that experience in the in our time of lockdown as we were not having uh, meetings together. Uh, a few Sundays I met with other friends and we had the sacrament together. And some Sundays I just read the prayers on my own. And um, and in simply reading the prayer, even without the emblems or symbols of his sacrifice, I uh, really felt that. Uh, I could hear, I love you, I love you. Um, I want to shift a little bit to the, the beautiful song that began our time together today, which was Rob Gardner's um, My Kindness Shall Not Depart From Thee. Part of that lyric is taken from um, Third Nephi chapter 22, uh, verses 7, 8, and 10. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, and this is quoting Isaiah, but will great, with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from thee, neither shall the covenant of my peace be removed, saith the Lord that hath mercy, mercy on thee. Uh, in Rob's um, oratorio of Joseph Smith the prophet, and in this piece, he combines that with also a couple of verses from the 122nd section of Doctrine and Covenants. Know thou, my son, that all these things shall give thee experience and shall be for thy good. The son of man hath descended below them all, art thou greater than he. Therefore, hold on thy way, and thy priesthood shall remain with thee, for their bounds are set. They cannot pass, thy days are known, thy years shall not be numbered less. Therefore, fear not what man can do, for God shall be with you forever and ever. Those phrases from Isaiah in particular, that uh, for a small moment I've forsaken thee and a little wrath I hid my face, um, are, those comments are probably worth a whole lesson on their own. The idea of does God actually turn from us or hide himself from us? As someone who uh, tries to write, I envy Isaiah's enormous ability to um, convey in such lyrically beautiful yet clear ways with his metaphors, uh, truth, and, and uh, really deep thoughts. And so I, don't, I would say that what he's saying is metaphorical rather than actual. But I also think there are moments when each of us probably feel those times that uh, our, it feels our prayers are 
uh, not being heard, the heavens are closed. Um, I remember a conversation at one point with uh, my favorite apostle, and we were talking about uh, the nature of revelation and and um, the process even of guiding the church. And he said, you know, it's not uncommon for the Lord to say, well, why don't you wrestle with that for a while? Why don't you go away and think on it? And when you've come to some conclusion, come back to me and we'll chat about it some more. And I think of that notion that, that in our learning process, uh, I, I think there are times when the Lord leaves us to, to work through on our own before he, to allow us to learn before he then comes back. And perhaps that's part of the notion of what Isaiah is saying and the Lord quoting him here in this, in this context. The second lesson that, that I wanted to talk about today is care for the scriptures in Revelation. Um, in, in chapter 23, we go through this scenario where um, Jesus says the teachings that he has and then uh, says to Nephi, who's presumably sitting in front of him, go bring the records that you've written. Which certainly puts Nephi on the spot. Uh, he brings the records and, and the Lord casts his eyes upon them and says, now, uh, I commanded Samuel the Lamanite, Lamanite to come speak to you uh, and to prophesy that many saints would rise from the dead and glorify the name of the Father um, at the time of the Savior's coming. And they said, now, wasn't that true? And they, yes, yes, indeed it was. Well, why aren't they in here? Why isn't that prophecy in what you've written? And it came to pass, Nephi remembered that this thing had not been written and that Jesus' command it should be written, therefore it's written according as he commanded. I think that may be true for us as well, that in moments where we have impressions and, and um, times where we feel particularly close to the Spirit and, and may feel that there are things that are meaningful to us, uh, that there is the necessity to record them uh, for ourselves, for future use, um, for clarity of our own thought process to build on what we've received as we move forward, and also perhaps uh, for, for those who come after us. I think of this of, again, that, that these things are uh, examples for us to use in our time. My, um, my, my good friend Linda was in Jerusalem on a misty spring day and walking along the, the, the beautiful honey-colored stone uh, passageways. And, and as she was telling me about her experience there, she said, I fell today where Jesus walked. <laughs> and I think we do try to walk where he walks and occasionally we fall where he walks. But in all these things, I think there's a, an example for us to try to not only be like him, but to do as he has, has suggested to others that can be meaningful to us as well. The third lesson I wanted to cover is care for the afflicted and for the poor. In chapter 26, verse 15, uh, Jesus, we read, heals the sick, the, lion, the, sorry, the lame, the blind, the deaf, all manner of cures, and raises a man from the dead. So that, um, uh, that again, is the second time he's performed healing in this period. But again, the miracles of Jerusalem and Galilee are also the miracles of Bountiful, and the people are able to witness both. In, uh, in chapter 24, verses 4 and 5, we also read, uh, Then shall the offering, and this is a quotation um, 
of, uh, of Messiah again, of Isaiah again, but then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And let's read chapter five. It's written in the negative, but think of it in the verse five, in the positive. And I will come near to you to judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against false swearers, and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger, and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. Um, you know, that uh, requirement that in order to follow him, we have to be attentive um, to kindness to those around us, especially to the widows and the fatherless, to uh, the stranger, to the poor. Um, you know, I, I think we could agree that throughout history, the Lord has measured societies by, and individuals, by how well they cared for the poor. Um, in the Doctrine and Covenants 104th section, for the earth is full and there is enough and to spare, yea, I prepared all things and have given unto the children of men to be agents unto themselves. Therefore, if any man shall take of the abundance which I have made and impart not his portion according to the law of my gospel unto the poor and the needy, he shall with the wicked lift up his eyes in hell being in torment. In your temporal things, you shall be equal. And this is not grudgingly. Otherwise, the abundance of the manifestations of the spirit shall be withheld. So the, our care for the poor is not only to ameliorate their physical circumstances, but in order to bring us closer to him through his spirit. Why might that be, right? I think clearly because as we convey the love of Christ to others, to those around us in need, we feel it more clearly, more strongly, more consistently ourselves. And in that feeling of his love, we feel his spirit. It's a virtuous circle, right? The more we feel his love, the more we desire to share it. The more we share it, the more we feel it. Um, it's been said that we control the, the means and the disposition of, of our resources, but we account to God for this stewardship, even over earthly things. I'd like to, um, to play a, a piece here of a talk that uh, Sister Sharon Eubank gave at BYU. Professionally, she is the head of LDS Charities, and in her calling is the first counselor in the General Relief Society Presidency. This talk was given at BYU um, at, in her, um, her role as head of LDS Philanthropies, LDS Charities, uh, but she had, in between the time of being invited to speak and speaking, had also been called to the General Relief Society Presidency. The big humanitarian crises that are going on right now and the ones in the past happen when people are driven out of their homes and lands, but at their heart, they are failures of knowing that we are really brothers and sisters and that God is the father of us all. That's the root cause of what's happening in the world. And when we respond in a humanitarian way, we can send bushels of food we can dig wells, we can build latrines, we can put up schools and health centers, and we can settle people into apartments. But if we don't do something about the strangers, about them feeling like strangers instead of our brothers and sisters, then the whole thing is in vain, 
and we're just going to feed that cycle of emotional and spiritual misery. Ammon and Sister Burton and Milton Collins are all using as a foundation what King Benjamin taught. To serve others is to serve God. Or as Jesus himself said, as I have loved you, love one another. There are many, many organizations and people who do enormous amounts of good in the world with their limited resources and their Benjamin-like desires to serve their fellow beings and to serve God. And in my work, I'm privileged to work with so many of them, and I get to see what's being done in the world. And I'm going to speak to you from my experience now about what I have seen that accomplishes the most lasting good. And if you want to be involved in humanitarian service, this is the way. The way is, and I hope this is the thing that you'll remember out of the forum today, you are the gift. You yourself are the gift. It's not the clothing. It isn't hygiene kits or school desks or wells. It's you. What would it look like if each of us were our own well-stocked humanitarian organization? But instead of giving out tangible goods in foreign locations, we had the richness of dispensing healing and friendship and respect and peaceful dialogue and sincere interest and protective listening of children and birthday remembrances and talking to the stranger. What if that were what your humanitarian organization did? This kind of humanitarian work can be done by anybody, and it can be done at any time. And you don't need warehouses and fundraising and transportation. And you can be perfectly responsive to any need that comes to you wherever you are. I love that idea that uh, <clears throat> that we are each the gift to someone in need, um, that we don't need to have massive warehouses in order to make an impact in the world, uh, that, that it's our kindness, it's our willingness to uh, bear one another's burdens, to walk alongside in a difficult journey. Uh, to simply be present at a time of need um, that is, in, in a sense, fulfilling that commandment of the Savior, to be attuned to the needs of all of his children. Um, in some ways, that happens again as we are uh, extended smile and a space on the pew next to us in the chapel for someone who looks unfamiliar or seems that they might have uh, difficulties weighing on their minds. But it's beyond that, right? It's also uh, being gracious in, in our dealings with our neighbors, with other people. I, I've really come to think that it's more important for us to, to um, in a sense, uh, focus on making friends for the Church of Jesus Christ, really making friends for Jesus Christ, than it is to focus on conversion or or um, formally bearing witness. You know, it's, it's our conduct. It's uh, the gift that we give of ourselves, of our time, our thoughtfulness, our awareness, and, and our willingness to withhold judgment, our willingness to lift and aid and succor um, that best represents Christ in this world and, and really represents what he would be doing, how he would be spending his time, I believe, uh, were he in our shoes. As President Ukrov so memorably said, that we are his hands. The fourth lesson uh, that I wanted to cover today is that 
the idea that, that we have a responsibility of care for all of the children of our heavenly parents. You know, we, we talked in this moment about uh, specifically the poor and those in particular need. But um, in chapter 25, the Savior quotes Malachi. Um, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to children and the hearts of the children of their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Um, you know, there are lots of ways to turn hearts, aren't there? <laughs> I, I think in one sense, uh, it's a, it, it is very directly uh, as parents turning our hearts to children, to being um, patient uh, and striving to uh, teach with love and kindness and to be aware of the individuality of, of each person before us, each child. Um, but also as children, it's our opportunity to um, reach out in, in love and understanding, even when there are great gulfs of, of difference. When I told my parents years ago that I had uh, separated from the woman who was then my wife and had asked to be excommunicated from the church, you know, I knew that that was an incredibly painful thing for them to hear, to feel that I was turning my back on everything that they held as the, the base of meaning in their lives. And the, the two years following that were a very difficult time for us. It was really hard to communicate with each other. I, I felt when they would say practically anything that there was a message of, of um, censure, and, uh, and I was defensive. And they could hear me talking about things that were bringing me happiness and peace and hear it as somehow uh, being contrary or uh, trying to say that what they believed was wrong. But over time, you know, I think the key lesson we learned, and it was through constant engagement and constant prayer on both sides, was that, that we could, in our love for one another, uh, be present in the things that were meaningful to each of us. We didn't have to share them um, in a sense that, uh, that, that we didn't necessarily have to have a whole change of mind about things that, that were important to us, but we could respect what was meaningful to the other person and take pleasure and happiness in the joy that it was bringing them. And simply say, yeah, my life looks different than yours. But I love that in your life, you feel peace and joy. And here is the peace and joy that I feel in my life. And, um, and I, I think that's part of the fulfillment of Elijah's mission, uh, almost as much as the work that we have the opportunity to do in temples. That, to be frank, the, the greatest joy I find in membership now in the church is that opportunity in the temple to feel like I play a little role in binding the family of God. That, and frankly, that's the only family I find in the scriptures is that single family of our heavenly parents. And, um, and I feel gratitude for a tiny little role I get to play in, in binding every single individual who's ever lived or ever will live into that family of God again. And maybe it's only symbolic. Maybe it has no impact except on my heart. But that's enough for me. 
to feel that my heart can be linked with that entire family. And in that sense, for me to be able to feel like I, a single gay man, have a place in the plan of salvation because I am a part of that chain of sealing and, and binding of that family of, of my heavenly parents. Um, <clears throat> finally, as we conclude in, in chapter 26, we see the miracle of speech the Savior grants to babies and children, of prophecy for them to utter and, and that cannot be written. I wanted to play you uh, a, little, a little snippet of a piece that uh, doesn't really tell us what children would say if they could prophesy, but maybe tells us a little bit about their understanding. Michael? When we say our prayers and the Father comes down and listens to us. Well, how could he be way over in heaven and hear you? How does that work? Fine. I love that notion. There are certainly times in my life when I there are lots of things I don't understand, um, but I but it works fine. <laughs> I don't know how I don't know how the atonement of Jesus Christ works, but uh, it works fine. Um, finally, the penultimate verse in chapter twenty six says, um, "And they talked and did minister one to another." And they had all things common among them, every, every person dealing justly one with another. I think, you know, that's, uh, that is the kind of a Zion society I think that each of us hope to be a part of, that we hope to play our role in building. And I, I think, again, gets to why when the Savior said the greatest commandment in the law, that we love God with all of our hearts, might, and strength and that um, the second is like unto it to love our neighbors as ourselves that those things really do encapsulate everything he's trying to teach us about his gospel that all of these things can take place if in our hearts uh, we love our heavenly parents and strive to draw closer to them we love our savior strive to draw closer to him and because of that love we are suffused with a love for all around us and our greatest desire is to be able to find anyone who has yet to feel it or in a moment when they need to feel it more strongly and to be able to have the, that incredible blessing of being a vessel to deliver the love of heavenly parents and savior to someone else. That um, even those who are gonna vote differently from us in a couple of weeks, <laughs> we can still find opportunities to, uh, to be a vessel of love in our own sense of, of peace and a desire to deal justly one with another, to have, if not physically all things in common, or at least to have our hearts in common with all who are around us. Those, those I think are the key messages that I take out of these chapters today and hope that uh, something in there has been useful to you. I guess we'll take whatever questions you have, and just before we do, may I just conclude by saying that, um, my grateful sense of certainty in the reality of Christ. Um, I, in, in my book, recounted, the first book recounted a 
a story of a, of a conversation with my father when I was in high school. And uh, as I recall, as reading the Book of Mormon probably made even more sense to be talking about reading the Bible. But I said to him, do you think this is literally a history? Like, did everything happen exactly as it is? Or is it more, a, more of a, you know, a, a, a metaphor or a, a teaching to help us have ways to have, find layers of meaning and dig deeper and deeper and return again and again and find things that speak to us with new experience uh, in the book? And he, my dad, who uh, my brothers would tell you, was was not one who was shy about sharing his opinion. <laughs> um, was quiet for a moment, and and he said, you know. He said, um, "What do you feel about the Book of Mormon?" And I said, "Well, I, you know, I've prayed about it. I feel like it, it is a witness of Jesus Christ. I feel like I feel closer to Christ when I read it." And he said, uh, "Well." then does it matter whether it's a history or a, or a metaphor, whether it's literal or a teaching? And uh, and that that has been a helpful thing to me at various points in my life as I think through it. Uh, what matters to me is how uh, I find the Savior in these pages, and especially in these chapters of Third Nephi, when I feel like I can be there uh, watching and hearing and participating directly to to feel and to see uh, his love <clears throat> in that setting. So to me, he is real. And I say that in his name, Jesus Christ, amen. Amen. Thank you. Um, as one of our attendees uh, has written, uh, we have been well nourished today and appreciate so much your insights and thoughts. Um, Lots of really thoughtful comments on chat. Maybe I'll bring in uh, this to begin with. Um, Margaret Young, who is always great about bringing deeply uh, felt personal experiences um, in to help us contemplate the meaning of truth and scripture, um, shared, uh, shared an experience with her daughter about um, her fearing the sacrament because of her perception of her unworthiness and not wanting to be, you know, taken away from that experience with, uh, with Christ and also to have the judgment of others uh, coming down on her. And uh, your thoughts um, that you shared uh, led her to reflect on Richard Rohr, uh, who talks about worthiness perhaps not being found in the ways that we usually think about it, but in but instead in terms um, it's found in our loving others. And that really seems to fit with uh, what you were saying. Uh, you brought in the scriptures and pointed out that uh, our usual hierarchy of sins where these are sins that make us unworthy and these are ones that we don't <laughs> really worry about. Um, you know, the that they all include this, um, you know, being attentive to others, to the poor, to the stranger, to the widow. So, you know, maybe talk a little bit more about how we can reframe our thinking about the sacrament and worthiness so that it fits with the great commandments to love God and to love others like we love God. You know, I, I attended church for seven years as a non-member I was used to say I was the most active non-member of the New Canaan Ward. But I, in that time, had a, a number of really wonderful conversations with um, 
Oh, I see Steve, I hope you're feeling better. And uh, Margaret, by the way, that Heart of Africa is such a splendid film. I'm so glad you made it, thank you. Um, in conversation with the bishop one time, I said to him, you know, I, as, as the sacrament is administered week after week after week, um, there are times when I feel like I'd like to participate, but I'm not a member. Uh, you know, what do you think? And he said, he said, you know, the way, the way I think about it is if you feel that um, taking those emblems will draw you closer to Christ, if that's the desire in your heart as that tray is passed, and in that desire you want to turn to him, which is the real meaning of repentance, right? To turn to the Savior. You know, if that, if this can be a way that brings you closer to him and gives you a greater or even strengthens the desire you already have to turn to him, then I think you should take it. He said, I think that's the spirit in which it's provided. He said, I, my concern is, you know, when I, and he said, I'm saying this for me, the bishop as a member of the church said, I, I worry when I take it by rote when I simply take it because it's there and we do that every Sunday and I don't think about how this draws me closer to the Savior and, and the ways I desire to turn to him more consistently. He said, so maybe that will be helpful to you as, as the tray is passed and make your own decision. And I, I really love that idea. And perhaps others see it differently and will remind you of Rebecca's statement at the very beginning that anything I say isn't either the doctrine of dialogue or the doctrine of the church, but it's been a helpful thing to me in my life and perhaps might be to someone else. There, if I could break in here or participate, there are a number of questions that um, actually go to the same question of, of being invited in um, to Christ's house. I think that was a, that's a very meaningful uh, image that you used and uh, welcoming to um, many of us listening. The, um, the, going to more to current events, there have been circulating uh, comments that say, if you vote differently, you're not welcome. If you support Black Lives Matter was one particular example, you're not welcome. Um, if you fly a gay flag, a pride flag, you're not welcome. Uh, there, there have been in, in our very recent weeks and months in a fairly divisive period of time, um, a number of comments that characterize people in one way or another by a label as not welcome in the Lord's house, in the, in, whether that's by way of a temple recommend or by way of participating in the sacrament. I wonder if you'd um, respond or react to those kinds of things that we have all seen happening um, in, in our present events kind of world. It's hard to imagine anything that I think would be more wounding to the savior than um, us using his teachings to beat somebody else over the head, right? <laughs> or attempting to do that. Um, I, and I'm, I'm not gonna quote this accurately, but again, in his lesson last week, Brother Tacolve said something along the lines of, as the savior invited the people to come uh, to feel and to see, um, 
that the 2,500th person had exactly the same personal, individual, intimate encounter with the Savior that the first person did. And, um, and I, 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 I thought it was a powerful thought when he expressed it. I, um, I think the Savior really rarely deals with us as groups. You know, I guess, you know, we do talk about the children of Israel and things like that, but but he deals with us as individuals. And in that sense, you know, we each um, approach the world and, and derive meaning in the world from a variety of factors, right? Our own experiences, the chemistry of our consciousness and the biology of our bodies, right? I mean, there are all of these things that are individual to us about how we experience the world. And yet we know his desire is for each one of us in our own individual ways to learn and grow and to have our hearts changed so that we can become like him. And, I, and so to me, that's the message of all of this, which is, I don't, when we talk about Zion of, of one mind and one heart, I don't think it means that we're all gonna see everything exactly the same way. We have individual experiences, right? But I think what it means is that that one mind is a mind that has a desire to know Christ. And that heart is a heart that has a desire to be changed, to be contrite and broken so that a new heart can take its place that is like his. That's, that's the sense in which I think we become a Zion people, which is, you know, out of all the diversity that is so wonderful and enriching, we can also have a unity of a heart in our desire to become as the Savior is and to love what he loves and how he loves. Um, so, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think the goal is that in a ward or a congregation or a neighborhood or whatever it is, that we're all going to see things exactly the same way. I think the desire is simply that in the different way we see things, we also are desirous of having a heart like his. And, uh, and that, you know, each of us is only accountable for ourselves, right? The only heart I can truly change is mine. And so you know, the Lord said a few things in his ministry about those who treat us unkindly, uh, that we don't return that unkindness, um, but we show forth greater love. So that, um, that fits to me with your talking about um, <laughs> the spirit uh, coming to us, uh, our closeness with our heavenly parents um, being linked to our care for each other. And, and, um, and that as we look for ways to uh, bind ourselves to this larger family of God, whether it's through temple ritual or through our everyday actions, uh, that that's when we come to build Zion and to have those personal relationships um, with God. There's a comment here um, that I think kind of gets to this. So we've got kind of this bountiful experience where, um, where individuals have this experience with the Savior, right? But then this feeling apparently lasts for another couple of generations um, before, you know, other things start to happen. Um, how do we how do we maintain that kind of uh, that connection that feeling of binding um, uh, kind of moving forward? As I'm only sixty, so ask me again in another forty years. I don't know, I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> I you know I think the, to me the one thing um, 
Actually, let me just share one experience, if I might, which is um, after about a year ago, after a general conference talk that that um, felt very hard for me to hear because it, I felt um, it it seemed to me to to show some unkindness to those who are numerically the least among us, our transgender brothers and sisters. And it, um, you know, it, it, I, I let that put me in, a, in kind of a dark place for several months. And um, in my prayers in that period of time, <clears throat> uh, the, the answer that I, I felt to receive over time was to pray for the spiritual gift of hope and not not hope like optimism or hope for a specific outcome, but hope in Christ. And as I have made that a, a prayer each day to, um, to feel hope in Christ and to be able to have my life reflected, some of the things that have, that have been hurtful can, can roll off my back, right? Because my when my focus is on the savior, I don't get bothered. I mean, I, I am bothered by unkindness wherever I see it, but I can continue to focus on the savior and feel a, a greater desire in my own life to show greater kindness, an increase in love, um, and to, to try and do what is it within my sphere to um, portray that influence uh, to others. Christian, you look like you have something. But you're on mute, Christian. But we're not hearing you. There, I'm muted. I was muted. Um, I was saying you preempted the question I had most in mind, which I, I appreciated your father's lesson uh, about the Book of Mormon. We... Um, learn from that. And I wondered if that was an example, if you have learned from your family, I guess going back to this question that Rebecca had posed about how the, how the generations continued after, after the bountiful experience. Um, you have had, as you've recorded in your book, and as you've mentioned today, some pretty important experiences in your family. And um, I, could I draw you out on those? I think they may serve as an example of how how these things continue over generations. Sure. I, um, I feel incredibly blessed and fortunate to have had the parents and brothers that I have um, and recognize that that, sadly, that that blessing isn't shared by everyone. And similarly to have had church leaders uh, at a critical point in my life who were open and welcoming and accepting of me and at the time of my partner. Um, so I, I am duly grateful and aware of, uh, frankly, kind of how um, unbelievably generous the Lord has been to me um, and wish that everyone else could have the same experiences that I have had and recognize in a heart breaking way that that is not the case. Um, 
and again, that maybe is another reason that each of us uh, are called to bear one another's burdens, that, um, that are, uh, an opportunity for love and understanding and engagement, uh, even in, in the face of difference, that parents can express um, but leave unexpressed, perhaps can be an opportunity for us in our sharing of others' burdens. Um, I, I think, Christian, perhaps one of the things you refer to is uh, uh, something I've shared often, so I apologize to those of you who've heard it before, but about two years after I came out, as we were gathered for a family reunion, and my brothers and their wives and I, after having put their kids to bed, had gathered in mom and dad's room, and we had prayer together, and our dad talked about what he felt was the importance of loyalty and unity in our family, that whatever would happen in anyone's lives, that, uh, that as a family, we would be loyal to one another and united. And then mom turned to my brothers and their wives and said, you know, the most important lesson that your children, our grandchildren will learn from the way that our family treats their uncle Tom is that nothing they can do will ever take them outside the circle of our family's love. And that, that notion of putting no barriers to love to me was a, was a revelation that they received about the stewardship for their family. And, and really set in place a, a, a number of blessings for all of us that have taken place since then. Because uh, my nieces and nephews and their children have not had, you know, perfectly easy lives. And, uh, you know, many of them have wrestled with faith questions or with, you know, with other difficulties in life. And I think that that family motto, that nothing will take you outside the circle of our love, uh, has been powerful for us to say that um, there are times that will test us and our commitment to never letting anyone be outside our love. Um, but if we are, I think, focused on our love and unity, our loyalty to one another, and, um, and frankly see that as an outgrowth of our um, desire to have a heart like his, um, then you know we don't do it perfectly, but we can at least keep moving in that direction. And, and that has an impact across the generations where individuals will make choices that, that they think are best for their health and happiness at a given moment in time. And the message for us is to stay engaged, to be genuinely interested in every life and not to you know, set as a metric of success, whether someone's active in the church or goes on a mission or marries in the temple. But the metric of success is that we are united in love and that, uh, that we remain um, in a loving engagement with one another through all the ups and downs of life and all the circumstances and different choices and, and experiences. I would just thank you. I, uh, thank you. I would, um, I'd, I'd like to draw back into that a comment you made in the middle of your lesson to talk about us as a family of God. And I think, I think you could easily extrapolate from what you just described that, that, uh, uh, if, if we think of ourselves or that a, a, I'm here, I am propounding myself, but I guess the idea of a Zion society as a family of God could yeah. take the lesson from your family, I think very appropriately. 
know, I love that we also talk about Enix uh, people as the city of Zion. And a city to me is a gathering place of, of diversity, right? People come to a city, they aren't all necessarily born there. And uh, cities are places with institutions of learning, right? Institutions of art. Um, the, the, the richness of a city is that you can bring all of these elements together and in the diversity of the city is the richness of the city, right? Think of the food, right? Just all the things that that um, seem like difference at the outset that in, in the end become this just incredible source of richness in that city. And to me, that's, I love that we talk about the city of Zion and I hope we think of the city of Zion in that way. Okay. Thank you so much, Tom. We've been blessed today with your uh, spirit and thank you for sharing uh, your testimony and your experiences and wisdom. All right, we will close today with a prayer, which will be offered by Dr. Nancy Ross, and hope you will join us next week for two devotional events, our regular Dialogue Gospel Study Lesson with Dr. Rebecca Rosler, and our first ever Dialogue Monthly Fireside with newly retired DC Circuit Judge Tom Griffith, who will be speaking on a Latter-day Saint approach to politics. Uh, Dr. Ross is a faculty member in the Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences Department at Dixie State University, where she's been teaching for 14 years. Her degrees are in art history, but she moonlights as a sociologist of religion. She recently co-edited a book with Sarah K.S. Hanks entitled, Where We Must Stand, 10 Years of Feminist Mormon Housewives, and has just co-edited Shades of Becoming, Poems of Transition, with Kristen R. Schill. She's an ordained elder and pastor of the Southern Utah Community of Christ Congregation and is working on an MA in Justice and Reconciliation at Luther Seminary. She also was an associate editor, helped with our fabulous spring issue of Dialogue on Women Claiming Power, which was guest edited by our friends at SMSU. Pray with me. God of liberation, in this moment of global pandemic, in this moment of US elections, in this moment of fear and unrest, help us to locate our spiritual imaginations in the middle of the discomfort of all we are experiencing. Help us to put our spiritual imaginations to work in service of undoing our racism in caring for the poor and the sick, in turning away from the false idols of homophobia and transphobia that lead us into the sin of self-deception, where we think we are doing good and right when we exclude people on the margins. Help us to imagine a church where all are welcome. Help us to imagine ourselves creating and receiving that welcome. Help us to imagine loving our neighbor as Christ has asked and modeled. Help us to imagine and embrace a God who rejects bigotry in all its forms. Guide us to reflect on the ways in which we are the oppressor and help us to join in the personal and systemic work of liberation from the injustices that flourish around us Help us to affirm the inherent worth and dignity 
of all of our siblings in Christ. God, help us to hear your call to build a better world, to build Zion. Amen.